You're listening to the Cash and Burn podcast, and I'm your host, Brandon Metcalf. Join me as I interview and have conversations with founders and leaders about the greatest obstacles and challenges they faced while building their businesses. Learn how they overcame them and ultimately what made them successful. The podcast is brought to you by Place. Place is a B2B SaaS customer subscription management, billing, forecasting, and metrics platform powered by Salesforce. Growing SaaS businesses use Place to better align their revenue and finance teams so they can boost revenue growth and retention, manage renewals, collect cash faster, and make more informed decisions all directly inside of Salesforce. Hey everyone, welcome back to, to Cash and Burn. Today I have Peter Nisbet. Um, I've known Peter for, what, a couple of years now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, former CFO, and now he's uh, building his own um, startup that's still in stealth mode, but... Uh, Got a little sneak peek at it. I'm excited about what you're going to do, but I'll let you talk about what you want to talk about with it, with all of that, and explain uh, explain everyone who you are and um, a little bit about you and your background. Yeah, thanks a lot, Brian. Yeah, for the last decade, I've spent my you know roles primarily in sort of finance and strategy and ops across uh, a few different you know, growth stage venture backed startups. Um, I started my initial career in, in investment banking and private equity. Um, you know, thinking I would stay as an investor side, um, but got one little taste of working in this operational finance role as a consultant initially at Bitly and couldn't have enough of startup life. So immediately moved a month later and it was full time, you know, doing pricing analysis, you know, building a model, getting into accounting, things you should never get exposure to or very little exposure to um, when you're as an investor or an you know, investment banker. Um, you know, and, you know, that was my first real taste. Get, you know, got a chance to work on a lot of you know big you know sort of di- uh, finance transformation projects there, and ultimately a sale of Bitly to a private equity firm back in 2017, and moved into more of sort of st- a strategy um, in corporate development role at a later stage venture back startup, thinking I just want to be um, you know st- the CFO track of going to bigger and bigger companies and eventually taking you know a company public. Um, really enjoyed that role. Got to work with a much bigger platform, a couple hundred employees, you know, 50 million dollars of revenue, but you know. My big takeaway for me is I still had this sort of founder bug. Um, I wanted wanted to go start a company. wasn't quite sure how, um, you know, and um, had a good friend of mine who was starting a company. He had started a company who was raising a Series A called TeamPay, which I was actually a customer of. You know, it was a B2B spin management platform um, that does, you know, corporate cards and expense reimbursements and accounts payable. And, and you know, I had the opportunity to go there being, you know, um, the VP of finance, but it was really a lot more than that. You got a chance to be involved in sales, customer success, product, um, ops, ran HR for a while, literally everything over three and a half years as we raised a series A and extension and then a series B, um, you know, really 10 X the company in that period of time. Um, but, uh, you know, as I, as you mentioned, um, you know, three and a half years is okay. I'm, I'm definitely ready to go do my own thing and, you know, take a company zero to one. Um, and I'll, yeah, in the last, you know, almost the last year I've been working on, um, my own project and hopefully we'll have something public to announce soon. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I mean, you've definitely seen all sides, right? So bigger companies and getting and and exiting and then, and then, uh, the work that you did at team pay, uh, team pay, if I could talk today, you, you kind of wore all hats, which is, uh, which is the journey. So what about being, uh, doing your own thing and, and launching your own company, uh, was motivating you? Yeah. You know, I, I've always had a whole, um, like uh, an Apple notes of a bunch of ideas I have all the time. I'm constantly bouncing off ideas or random startup ideas with friends. And um, I've really admired and respected a lot of founders in the journey that, that the challenges they go on and knowing it's like, obviously like are really challenging and 
in most cases, you know, one that leads in failure. And so I think it was something I was preparing myself for that sort of experience of like um, the very much highs and lows of that. And I, you know, I don't think I was ready for that, you know, a couple of years ago, but I've done a lot of work on myself and feeling a lot more confident about the ability to, you know, take on, you know, a lot of new challenges. Um, and then also finding good co-founders that you, you know, can trust and um, really, you know, rely on each other to, you know, push each other forward, especially when you know, times are tough. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a never ending uh, journey of growth and development. I've been doing it for for a while now and love it, but uh, it definitely pushes you in ways that uh, I was not expecting when I got it, when I got my first company going. But obviously with now when I'm on four companies like total, like <laughs> you get the bug and you just kind of go with it. Um, with that, though, I would imagine there's a lot of things that you've seen over the years in all the different companies that you've been in, all the different roles you've been in um, that are challenging obstacles that you've had to overcome. Um, what are some of the things that you've seen? One of the things I've seen is, you know, a bit, you know, Bitly, when I first came in, um, they've been around for about a decade. And one of my first projects was asked by the CEOs, like, hey, Peter, go fix pricing. I was like, cool, sounds like a great project. Reading a bunch of research reports, McKinsey, you know, um, articles on pricing strategy, download a bunch of like, like Harvard Business Review, like articles on like, oh, here's how you can run a pricing analysis, you can do interviews, here's the data you need. So like, okay, great, got a plan. And I go and try to find the data for this and realize the CRM data doesn't make any sense ask some questions. It's like, oh yeah, we haven't really been logging deals in Salesforce consistently or accurately um, or the contracts. Um, and so we actually don't really know, you know, why we lose deals, why we win deals, how much actually ARR we have. And this is sort of my first experience of like, oh, like we have this assumption that companies just work and they're doing well and they, everything works. And, you know, as, as I'm sure as you know, as, as you, you know, pull back the layers of the onion in any company, you know, everyone's trying to do their best, but, you know, so-and-so left three years ago and that person has never replaced. We didn't realize this whole function hasn't existed since then. Um, and so, you know, the, the, in this case of a sales ops or rev ops function was really in its sort of infancy there, there, and, um, you know, you know, and there was an opportunity to go like realize, oh yeah, this is something that needs to happen. And there's probably a lot of downstream impacts this is happening or you know, causing. And so, you know, building a sales ops team, you know, at, at Billy and advocating for that function ultimately realizing that was impacting also our invoicing, which is impacting cash flow, um, and have realizing, oh shoot, we haven't um, invoiced some customers in three years and, you know, and all these sort of, sort of other sort of downstream impacts of not having good data early on. And then also, Hey, we're trying to do investor reporting, tell a story about our ARR growth and also realize like, oh, how confident are we actually in expansions or contractions or down, you know, churns, you know, new, new ARR. And, you know, how do you build that sort of confidence internally that you can trust the numbers and that you can say with a straight face to investors so like, yes, we are growing 30%, you know, quarter on quarter. And so that was, you know, that was one of my first challenges of, you know, in the finance ops strategy role, like, as you just keep on pulling, you know, pulling on that thread, you so much more of the company unravels. And this is, you know, it's just an opportunity to go and, um, uh, prioritize and triage and realize like, oh, this is, you know, this can have a big impact across the, the entire work. Yeah, we definitely see that a lot. I mean, at Place, this is one of like the main areas that we've always focused on um, as far as understanding the data, understanding the flow of the data, 
um, really trying to solve one of the challenges I think finance has in an organization, which is how do you get clean sales data that you can trust and understand and, and it's reliable. Um, at the same time, how can you then manage the process of going from the initial lead all the way through collecting cash and streamlining that so that, you know, it's more automated and self-sufficient than it is manual process over manual process over manual process with multiple sources of, of truth um, all over the place. Um, we've had the, the privilege of seeing so many of our customers, just the different challenges they've had and everything from, you know, super tiny to larger like series C, series D type companies as to, you know, uncovering where some of the bodies are buried and just some of the challenges they have. And, you know, it's funny when you were talking about um, realizing that, you know, there was customers that haven't been built in three years. We actually um, discover that. We always do an audit when we're done setting up our, our RevOps product and we audit. And I don't know if you know this, like place has changed. We, we talked a couple of years ago about place and place was an FP&A platform. Now we're, we've really kind of moved away from that where we're now purely a RevOps platform um, connecting sales to finance. And, you know, we do the billing piece, the RevRec piece and, and the front end of managing subscriptions. And every time we get set up, we always do an audit um, of like, does the data jive? Like, is everything matching? And we always find issues, like the data doesn't match. And it's usually customers have missed invoicing customers they should have invoiced for. Um, we see a lot too in like the renewals process where it didn't get renewed properly because they didn't have a clear view of what all the products and what all the true pricing was at the renewal. Um, but the contract was up and they needed to move forward. So they moved forward pretty quickly. So it's, it's been really fascinating to see that because the problem you're talking about, I think is compounded across the industry. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that again, I mean, this goes like, we'll, we can talk about this more about this sort of like underinvestment and sort of the ops function is that, you know, I think as a, a CEO, you're just taking the assumption that this stuff is right, or people are giving you the right numbers, but you, you need the right sort of person with the right background to like really ask these deeper questions. It's like, Hey, like, is this, is this being done right? You know, just one more example, just like that. One of the other things we realized in that process is that we had all these customers that were auto-renewed, but we never heard communications from them, but they're on auto-renew, so we kept on renewing them and paying commission on it, even though they hadn't used the product in three years. <laughs> oh, they're on auto-renew. We'll auto-renew them again for another auto-renew contract. And, you know, these customers, you know, aren't real customers. And so, like, you know, another sort of thing is, like, we've invoiced them, but also those invoices will actually never be paid because they haven't, you know, used the product in, you know, a few years. But then commissions being paid out and all of that. I yeah, mean, that's yeah. why you get into some of the tricks of like at my companies, we won't pay commissions until we get paid. You can't do that at bigger companies, bigger companies. You have to pay commission. Yep. Right? Like, yep. But there's, there's tricks of trying to figure out checks and balances, but mm -hmm. it's, it's like, it's a moving target as to where, where the actual issue is. And um, I also like what you're saying about having people you can trust because like, I think my job is to just question everything, but I still have to trust my team and know mm -hmm. that they're doing the best that they can. But I look at to say, what are we missing? What, do I, what am I not understanding? And is it just completely easy for me to get the information that I need? And if it's not, how do we fix that? Because I'm always concerned, not so much about, will people do a good job and will people try? I think everyone at the company genuinely wants to do a good job when they yeah. want to try. But what happens if someone gets hit by a bus? Like what happens if your key person is out for six months? Like, are you stuck? Are you scrambling? Or, or if that key person leaves the company, which has happened to me as well. Like, mm -hmm. how, how do you then manage from that if, if they're your only reliable source? 
Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot, of, a lot of that knowledge is stored locally in someone's brain and how do you get that out in, in, in the paper? And then to your point, like I think build the sort of reconciliation processes and like we're talking like one, one piece, right? Like we're just talking invoices and, and, and ops, but like this is true across the entire business um, of like, how do you make sure um, HR data, sales data, marketing data, CS data is actually like, you know, accurate. And like, how do you make sure to your point, like build a process around all that? And what lens are you looking at it from? Because, you know, when your head of sales presents data, they're going to have a different lens and a different objective than when your head of finance presents the same data. Uh, it's not always the same lens that they're thinking or looking through. Um, and how do you normalize that and get everyone on the same page and, and build those bridges? It's, it's one of the cool things I think RevOps does for a company is it helps to, to bridge the gap between sales and finance if it's done right. Um, where they, those teams can partner and be on the same page and have a healthy dynamic versus um, a lot of times you see a contentious dynamic between sales and finance. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that's usually the first place I dig in for what it's worth is a head of finance. And usually that's why I you know, advise and consult and mentor a lot of other finance leaders on of like, you know, you're, you're for two key hires or two key people you need to work with, whether they work for you or work at your company, you're going to be you know, if you're not a, an accountant, if you're a finance person, you should hire a controller that understands the accounting and someone who's on the RevOps team that understands, yeah. you know, all your sales data, because, you know, those are the two things that would be driving so much of your reporting and analysis and, um, you know, ability to execute. And if you're, you don't have the, if you don't actually know what you're talking about, or, you know, the, the numbers aren't right, right you know, it's really hard to make good recommendations. Yeah. One of the things I always focused on, especially when bringing a new executive into the company is do they understand how cash flow works at the company and can they explain to me how cash flow works at the company? Because um, if you can't explain cash flow and understand really like how much money do we have in the bank, how do we get money in the bank, how do we control spend, then you can potentially start to make some decisions that are just going to hurt cash flow. Like what's like? Do you understand pricing terms and and why billing frequency is important and net you know, what the net terms of that, why that's important. Like there's a lot of basic stuff that I've just learned over the years that not everyone has really been focused on it and understanding it the way like accounting and finance has. So getting them on that same page and helping them to think through that lens has helped me a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, that is also the role of a good finance leader. And I think this is partially why companies need to bring in finance leaders early is to help build that shared um, understanding. Um, around some sort of core finance concepts for the entire executive team. So you know, whether you're the head of sales or head of marketing, to your point, like having some like basics understanding of like how, how the whole machine works is really, really important um, um, situational awareness, even as they're trying to build, um, you, know, you know, focus on more ops or focus on closing deals. It's kind of interesting though. It's a, it's a good segue because I, I literally over this past weekend watched a, a YouTube of a podcast from Jason Lipkin um, and he was talking about, you know, when do you hire a VP and um, what is the value you get from a VP versus hiring someone that you can groom to become that role, which, you know, as a early stage founder, it's a lot cheaper in your mind to hire a junior level person that you can build into the role. Um, versus going out and hiring a VP that's going to cost you a lot more money and is a lot more risky um, and getting them plugged in. Um, so you brought up bringing on someone to head finance earlier. Like what's your thoughts around when do you bring in like real executives? Yeah. So I think that once you raise a series A in most or kind of the traditional sense, maybe even these days, maybe a seed, if it's a very large seed, that's the right time to start building the executive team and a head of finance 
can be and should be one of those first hires. Some companies can get by with someone who's maybe more junior, even a finance manager or a director, but I think it requires a part-time fractional CFO to bridge the gap between the, you know, the, the C-suite and that junior person. So where I've seen it effective of bringing in like a finance director or finance manager or someone with less experience is partnering with them with who can, someone can be a mentor and provide that sort of additional context, guidance, awareness of the stuff that they just don't know and help them develop into it. Like people won't develop into higher, more senior roles without some sort of mentorship and guidance um, in most cases, or it's a lot harder to. And so if they are going to do something like just bringing a director, make sure that's paired um, with some sort of like CFO mentor. Yeah. I mean, cause like the value you get, and I wholeheartedly believe this, even, you know, you're going to spend two times or three times as much on, on bringing in a, a senior level exec versus hiring someone more junior that you have to train um, on a lot of different fronts, like how to be executive, how to run a department, how to interact with other department leaders. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty tall task. And, you know, I've always had like my background, I grew up through the ranks. So I was always taking on bigger roles than I was probably ready for, but I would get into the role and I would always push myself to, to master it. And I know in the past, I've had the challenge of, of just thinking that same way as I can find someone who can go and do that and just get there. What I've learned is you can make that bet sometimes, but you can't make that bet every single time for every single role. Cause really the, the, point of bringing on more executives and hiring people is to take stuff off of you as the founder and find people who are better than you at those areas. So you don't have to worry about it. So you can trust them so they can do it. And hiring someone that really can step in as as that exec is probably going to be four to five X more pr productive than the junior level person. Plus, then the strain on you as the, the founder and CEO, you don't have to get lost in how much time are you now spending essentially trying to do their job and your job. So what's the point of the hire in the first place? Yeah. Like, is it giving you a long enough stick and I can move the world? Like this is the concept of leverage. I think it's really hard for a lot of people to get around themselves. Is that like, how can you focus on, you know, leveling yourself up as a CEO, particularly, and moving, you know, to that, whatever that next level is for you as an as executive leader. And one of those ways is getting out of the weeds on as many things as possible, as quickly as possible with the right person in, in, in charge. And so that's, I think the big difference between like a director and a VP is like a director is going to need still some management and, you know, handholding in most cases as a sort of like leveling, I would say. And a VP is someone who can like independently operate without any sort of like, if I leave for three months, it's still gonna be working and running smoothly and um, and, and grow and, and improve, right? Like, I think that's the, that's the piece. And so to your point, like it does feel expensive. It does feel like an investment to your, I think one other piece, like I always say is like, if this person hasn't paid for themselves in, in some way in the first two quarters, you found the wrong person. And so you can always, you know, you can always like have that sort of like sort of perspective of like, this isn't working out after 90 days. Like if they haven't figured out how to, pay for the entire, you know, base pay and either savings or, or, or revenue found or cash found, et cetera, then, um, either your business is perfectly run, which is very unlikely, um, or, you know, you found the wrong person. Yeah. that was a, an area that I, I still struggle with. Like how quickly do you pull the plug? Um, one of the ways that I've changed things to help myself be more efficient of making the determination of, is this person the right person for the company or not? is I have this process now before we can hire anyone at, at one of the companies, not only do we have to have a job des description, 
you're going to have to tell me how that person is going to be measured against that job description down to how they're going to be compensated for it. What are the KPIs that are really going to tell me if the person is delivering or not? And how does that then factor into the, the bigger plan, the bigger strategy that we're trying to execute on? So I can you know, very easily see if we hire XYZ person, this is how it's going to help me achieve XYZ corporate goal um, and why we're going to make the bet. And it's been an interesting experience because getting those job descriptions in from from the leaders and everyone's like, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I'm like, you're going to slow down and do this because it's too important to get this right. Because if we get this wrong, it's going to cost us way more money and time than what we're spending right now trying to get it right. Um, and seeing the pushback in, in back and forth of, you know, what is the actual job description? Like, are we really clear? Because building startups like people just kind of do everything, right? But if you can get more clear on what you want them to do and what the role, like, why are you spending the money on this role? Um, and here's the outcome. Then it helps you figure out, well, who are you actually going to hire for this? Um, and that goes all the way up to the executives too. Like, are you hiring the right type of VP to come in that's actually going to fit with where you're at as a company, where you need to go? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. I think that's also being clear in the interview process. So like, I try to like write JDs to say that, like, and my, in your first 90 days X, in your first, you know, two quarters Y, and by the end of your first year Z. And like that can share, you know, filters, but it also gives you a, a starting place for KPIs of, you know, what you can define success as. Yeah, and be real, like here's here's where this job's gonna suck and here's where it's gonna be great. And you're either gonna have to like this or you're not in order for this to work because it's this is just how it's gonna be. And, if you're that open and honest, I think it does a couple different things. I think one, it gives a person a perspective of what they're going to walk into, but two, then you have that sense of trust built in that, you know, I was clear what we were walking into together. So now let's manage through it. And I think that's a great foundation for, for starting a relationship. It's kind of like dating, right? It's yeah. you show up in a, in a big fancy car that you borrowed from someone um, just to make an impression. Uh, it's going to come out that that's not your car and you were just trying to fluff. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, one of the one of the things that is is really, I think a lot of people are are focused on right now. A lot of founders, CEOs are focused on right now, is not only getting through two thousand twenty three, um, but should we start looking at fundraising? What does fundraising look like? And I know in our in our prep for this, we were talking about down rounds and and just what the market looks like. I mean, what's your thoughts on on raising capital and and at the end of 2023. Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, um, I, I raised a pre-seed in March of this year, and that was really challenging. Probably the, like a week, like we were taking checks like the week SVB collapsed. So definitely probably better markets right now oh, than it was um, six months ago, um, but still really challenging. Like, I mean, the public news on this week was probably one of the you know best product teams in the countries at Ramp, um, the car company, and they just did a, you know, a big new round, but it was at a down round and no, no hard, feelings to them. Obviously they've done a really good job. You know, I think they've said they forex growth, but that's just the nature of valuations this in this market. So the kind of opinion where you did your last round, you should just expect that and you know internalize that um, and prepare your company for that and prepare your investors for that. And there's ways to do that and knowing that like, you know, being being in the race to fight another day is probably the most important part for most founders. And so making sure you're well capitalized um, rather than wait and see and hope for the best. Um, that is a strategy, probably not the best strategy for most people is waiting and see. Um, and so I think being being very proactive, working with your existing investors, figuring out venture debt if you haven't done that, um, figuring out, you know, 
some sort of bridge round, et cetera, to really sort of think through like, what are, you know, what's the next, you know, what, what's the next sort of like stage of growth or where, you know, metrics that you need to do to do your next actual full lettered round. And like, how do you get there? And you need capital between now and then. And, you know, I think a lot of companies are like, oh, I'm going to just try to like make my series a last longer. And that is a, in a strategy. And I think that's sometimes appropriate where you just have to, and you're going to have to figure out how to make you know money go farther. But if, you know, depending on the competitive dynamics of your industry, you could just, that could be a really bad strategy. If everyone else raised right before you and you haven't, like you're going to be, you know, severely, you know, under, you know, under investing in you know, say go to market or product. And in a year or two from now, it's, it's going to be much, much harder to raise because you're going to be behind on both, you know, features as well as, you know, customer count. And so I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard, you know, hard strategic conversation and decision to, you know, to have, but I do think, you know, frankly, probably most um, executives should be thinking about raising in the next 12 months um, if they haven't raised already this year. And um, some of the things they can do to get ready for that is beyond just figuring out what those sort of core KPIs and metrics they are, should be tracking are. It's like, you know, if it's going to be a down round, how do you make sure the employees stay around and stay incentivized and getting prepared to do, you know, sort of like um, either additional option grants or repricing of um, option grants to, to make sure employees still have skin in the game. Yeah. Like I think this is probably one of the most strategic things a founder um, or CEO like, that you have to think about, you have to figure out what is your long-term plan. Um, and I've had a lot of friends raise money. I've raised a lot of money for the different companies I've been um, building. Like what's the goal like of where you're going? So it's not just, I need cash now, or, you know, we want to grow faster or we're out of money. We need more money. Um, it's what, how does this set you up for the next round? And how, what about the round after that? Like, are you growing just to get to the next round? which is a strategy and there's nothing wrong with that strategy. If your growth can get you there and you can continue to, you know, 10 X ARR, then all of a sudden you're going to have a massive exit or, you know, are you not growing that fast and you need to look at, well, how do I get more capital efficient and look at how do I get to cash flow break even? So I don't have to continue this, this funding chase. But I think the dynamics of your industry, the dynamics of your product, like I have three different companies right now and all three are vastly different with, the capital structure, uh, you know, Assemble, we launched in the beginning of this year and we have more pipeline than we can keep up with. And that company is actually very easy. Well, easy, I wouldn't say very easy, easy to raise money for compared to what I'm hearing in the market um, because we have such a pipeline and because we're growing so fast. Um, Blueprint, my, my services consulting company, we're bootstrapped and we're constantly focused on cash flow. And we have to be so super aggressive with customers paying on time because we've been like, I thought that business was going to slow down uh, this year. And the business has actually grown healthily all through the year and remained cash flow positive all through the year. Um, but we've had the challenge of the, some of the tech companies that we work with don't pay their bills on time or they'll pay 60, 90, 120 days late. And we're like, that doesn't work in our world. Um, and figuring out something unusual for that business compared to my other software startups of getting a line of credit from the bank and leveraging the line of credit to manage cash flow at non-profitable early stage software companies, that's not really an option. Um, and then in place, we have the other challenge where we have a really high win rate, but our pipeline's really hard to build because of the environment that we're, we're selling in. And, and so it's, it's just a, a mixture, but the, the focus is like understanding to, to your point, like 
what are the different types of finance I can bring in? Is there venture debt? Is there like crowdfunding? Um, is there things like founder founder path, which I'm a big fan of, of Nathan and what he's doing there where you can borrow against your ARR? Um, like what are the different options? Because raising a big round and going out and doing doing that process is immensely time consuming. Um, and is it really the right direction of where you want to go? Well, and, and, and yeah, to your point, like the risk, right? Like you spend three months out of the business working on the, on the fundraise, you're not, you know, it's really hard to keep, especially if you don't have a strong executive team, you know, you know business is suffering um, or you're missing the specific roles, which is almost always the case. Like you almost never have a full bench as much as yeah. you want one. Um, and yeah, it's, it's risky. You could also just swing and miss. And that's also really challenging. Yeah. I think that's a, another good question of like, when do you, you know, make this sort of, strategic decision to be cash flow positive. Like I've had to do that at a couple of businesses and that's hard. Like you're no longer on the, you know, on the venture route, which is, you know, a very different, like, you know, probably like, you know, outcome, you know, in some sort of, sort of like an ultimate M&A or, you know, or exit for you as a founder, for your existing investors, you're probably not going to be as happy with their, you know, two X return versus a hundred X return or whatever that you sold them on. And so, yeah, there's a lot of sort of stuff that, you know, sort of strategic decisions, but like that could be the best thing for the company and for you as a founder um, in terms of control and in terms of, you know, like ultimate, you know, um, you know, value valuation, you know, ultimately, but it's, yeah, it's definitely a different journey and, you know, takes, um, takes some hard decisions to become cash flow positive in most cases. In every case, I've always had to do, you know, some, you know, you know, hard decisions around, you know, team structure and riffs and, you know, things like that. And that's, you know, hard conversations um, to have and also accepting in some cases that like essentially lower growth, like we are not going to yep. invest as fast as we could if we had money to light on fire like I did when I was, you know, on, a, on the venture path. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's really figuring that out. My best advice to everyone is to surround yourself with a network of people that will give you advice um, and listen and understand what you're talking about and all of that. But don't take advice blindly, like try to consume as, as much of it as you can, then it's your job to interpret it and figure out what the right uh, path forward is based off of all those different inputs. Um, it's how I figured out a lot of things over my career is just listening to people. And I've always been, I've always raised a lot of money from angel investors. And what I like from angel investors is, yes, the investment and the, and the belief and all that. But more importantly to me is most of those angel investors are successful, savvy business people. And now I have a pool of people that I can go to and get opinion, ask questions, get input um, in a way that's actually very helpful for, for me and for, for running the business. Um, well, what do you think, and you kind of answered this already, but what do you think founders and executives should be focused on um, now and for the rest of the year? Yeah, I think it's making those, you know, sort of like tough, having good strategic conversations at the founder, exec team, and ultimately board level of like, you know, where is this business going and what should we be doing? I think it's to your point, like the answer is going to be different for everyone. Some people it's like, we should definitely raise like the, the potential is real. If we had more cash, we could do X, Y, and Z. And we think we could, you know, continue to grow at a rate that will hit the next, you know, benchmark for the next, uh, you know, sort of stage of business, series B, series yeah. C, et cetera. Some need to have the conversations. Like, I don't know if it's ever going to get better or like, you know, what, what do we need to do? I do think M&A is a really tough route right now. So I think that's probably like also out of the question for most people in like the current environment. And so it's like, how do you, you know, depending on your situation, like, you know, what are the things you need to do to get to a place of either cash flow break even some sort of like, you know, 
some sort of exit or, you know, the next round. And I think those are the conversations for all sort of like 2024 planning. People should be really kicking off here after Labor Day, um, because I think that's this year is a hard, harder year than most. And like, what's 2024 look like? We all want to think it's going to be better than 2023. Well, the 2023 was really challenging for you know, so many reasons, interest rates and SVB and all this other stuff that happened. Um, yeah. And so, like, you know, how, how do you prepare for another you know year of a lot of unpredictability? And potentially yeah. to your point, Brandon, like, like hard pipeline, right? Like if everyone else is suffering, then like it's, it doesn't matter how amazing a product you have. Like a lot of companies are just like, we're not buying new software, full stop. <laughs> like, and that, that's a hard place to be for your software business. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we th- we had high hopes that 2023 was going to be better than 2022. And I don't think that was the case. So, mm-hmm. but hopefully 2024 um, does shift and change it. Well, um, Peter, we're out of time. So I, I want to thank you for coming on. The chat's mm-hmm. been great. I really look forward to uh, seeing what you guys launch when, when you do launch in the upcoming months. And uh, I have no doubt it's going to be a big success. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Brandon. All right, everyone else, Cash and Burn comes out every Tuesday, so tune in and thanks for watching.